Well, if you have ever been subject to injustice or unjust treatment by a person or an institution, uh, then you know one of the common questions we ask during that experience that runs through our hearts and minds is, why? How often Joseph must have wondered when he was imprisoned by his brothers, God, why? How often Job must have wondered when he lost his family, wealth, and reputation, God, why did you do this? And when we experience injustice as Christians, so often the question is, what is this for? Why? And so as we continue in our sermon series this morning, the Acts of the Risen Christ, we'll see a similar kind of question rise up through Paul's experience of injustice. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we've been tracing Paul's experience on trial in Jerusalem, his transfer to Caesarea as the Jewish authorities seek uh, his death for preaching the hope of the resurrection, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And last week in particular, you saw how God providentially directed Paul's paths to protect him from a threat to his life and to bring him safely, yet surprisingly, to Caesarea, where he stayed under house arrest for another two years. And if you're not familiar with the language of providence, one theologian defines it this way. God is continually involved with all creation in such a way that he actively preserves all things and directs all things to fulfill his purpose. And we saw how God did that through a variety of circumstances in Paul's life last week. But now this week, we'll see that God's providence extends over to things like injustice. And so this week, we'll see specifically how God's providence relates to injustice by considering, in our passage, the story's summary, the story's interpretation, and then the story's significance. But before we dive in, please pray. Heavenly Father, injustice is painful. It hurts. It causes us to doubt your goodness and to doubt your power. And so, Lord, today, as we come to your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see who you really are, and how you're really at work in the world. And we ask especially that you would help us to see the beauty, the power, the glory, the goodness and grace of Jesus, so that we would be eager and ready to trust you no matter what we face. So Lord, help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately, so that Jesus would be exalted, and we would trust him throughout all of our days, no matter what we're experiencing. And please use our time together to reorient our hearts to his goodness so that we might live for his glory and exalt his name above every name. So in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 25, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find one under your seat or the seat next to you, uh, and uh, you can find... Our passage, if you're not familiar with the Bible, on uh, page 934, you'll be looking for a big, bold number 25, followed by a small number 1. That's a chapter and then a verse. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please consider this our gift to you. It would be our great delight for you to continue to hear from God throughout this week by reading uh, this Bible yourself. But once you find it, you know what Burdens and distractions are on your heart as it relates to issues of injustice and unjust treatment. And so I just invite you to quietly surrender those to the Lord and ask for him to speak to you the word you need to hear this morning, that he would open your heart to what he's prepared for you. Well, for the sake of time this morning, I won't be reading this text in its entirety, but simply summarizing it as we go. But if you are ready to receive God's word, would you say, I'm ready? Let's dive in. Now, so we'll be taking this story in three parts. First, uh, we'll consider the compromise, then the conundrum, and then finally the conclusion. So look with me in verses 1 through 12 to see first the compromise. 
So you might remember last week we learned that Felix was put in house arrest for two years where uh, Felix was expecting Paul to bribe him in order to get him out of that situation. But for two years, Paul didn't give in. He didn't extend the bribe uh, such that eventually Felix left office. He was no longer the governor and instead was succeeded by Festus. And so our passage begins in verse 1, explaining how as the new governor, he rightly wants to begin to get acquainted with those under his rule and reign. So he goes to Jerusalem to get familiar with the Jewish institution and leadership in Jerusalem. And in verses 2 through 3, we see how while he's visiting Jerusalem, very quickly the Jewish leaders come to him and begin to bring all of their complaints against Paul. So that, and beg him to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so that they could try to murder him once again. However, whether he realizes their plan or not, Festus declines the request and instead, in verses 4 and 5, invites them to come to Caesarea where they can lay out their charges before him and his role as the tribunal. And so in verse 6, as soon as he returns to Caesarea, Festus immediately holds court to hear the charges laid out against Paul. But in verse 7, we see that even after two years to prepare their case, their case is no better than it was the very first time. They bring their charges against them, but the text says they still can't prove any of them. Two years later, they've not gotten any better. The proof still isn't there. And so in verse 8, Paul argues once more he's not violated any of the laws of the Jews, he's not profaned the temple, and he's done nothing against Caesar. And so at this point... If Festus was interested in true justice, he would have declared Paul innocent. The Jews couldn't prove anything he'd done was wrong. Paul had adequately defended the fact that he, was neither, he had neither broken any Jewish laws. He was not formally a threat to Caesar or the Roman Empire. And so he deserves to be declared innocent. But instead, Festus compromises. Verse 9 tells us that wishing to do the Jews a favor... Festus proposes a compromise solution. He suggests that Paul's trial would occur in Jerusalem, hoping to satisfy the Jews. But he would also stand trial before Festus, so that it's still under Roman authority. But Paul senses something's wrong. He's already on trial. He knows he's done nothing wrong. He knows that Festus knows he's done nothing wrong. And knows that there's then no good reason to move this trial all the way back to Jerusalem. He deserves a verdict that day. And Paul, of course, is absolutely right. We don't know exactly what kind of favor Festus is wishing to give the Jews, whether he knows what's going on and is planning to send him there so that the Jews can attempt to assassinate him along the way again, whether he's simply trying to move the trial to their home turf where he might be influenced to give an unjust outcome, or whether the favor was something else entirely. But what we do know is Paul recognizes something is amiss, this will not go well for him if he goes back to Jerusalem. And Festus has compromised justice simply to secure political favor. And we see something like this still happen today as we consider many of the politicians that you know, promise the world but never deliver. Or they promise the world and change their mind once they're in office. They're simply doing what they can to get elected. But as soon as they've got that favor... They're not interested in justice anymore. That's the same thing going on right here. Festus is looking to secure favor and willing to compromise justice to do so. And sadly, in our passage, because Festus compromises on justice here, Paul has to make an appeal to Caesar, lest he be handed over to the authorities who would want to kill him. And so he appeals to Caesar so that his case would be tried both in a place and in a court, and before a judge who would be most likely to give him justice. And once again, rather than simply declaring him innocent as he ought to, and exonerating him of all charges, but at the same time, risk losing favor of the Jews, Festus instead confers with his counsel and agrees to give him his appeal to Rome. But this decision creates a little bit of a conundrum for Festus, and we see that in verses 13 through 27. Here's the issue, as Festus describes it in verse 26. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. 
For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yeah, that would be unreasonable, right? To send someone for a trial with no charges laid out against them. And that is Festus's conundrum. Because he knows that Paul is innocent, and he hasn't been able to identify any legitimate charges against him, Paul should have already been declared innocent. But because he didn't declare him innocent, Paul has appealed to go all the way to Rome, and now Festus has to explain, why am I sending this guy to Rome? Why am I asking you to sit over a trial that there's no charges for? Fortunately for Festus, verse 13 indicates that Agrippa the king and his sister Bernice happened to arrive in Caesarea at this time. Now, King Agrippa was the latest of the many Herods who were involved in ruling over Jerusalem and were intertwined with both the affairs of the early Christians and Jews. And so as one scholar puts it, Agrippa was without a doubt concerned for Jewish affairs. He insisted that the Gentile husbands of his sisters accept circumcision. He bought expensive timber to save the temple when the foundations began to sink. And when the reconstruction begun by his great-grandfather Herod had been completed and thousands of workers were threatened with unemployment, he paid them to pave the streets of Jerusalem with white marble. And yet, at the same time, his political loyalties were unquestionably Roman. And so given Agrippa's familiarity with Jewish customs and rituals and beliefs, and yet being a faithful representative of Rome, Festus is looking to him for counsel on how to navigate this particular case. And so he explains in verse 18, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. In other words, what Festus is saying is, I don't understand what they're talking about. And I need your help to understand what this whole matter is about. And he's inviting then Agrippa, the Roman expert on Judaism, to give his counsel. And so Agrippa is intrigued by all this and asks to hear directly from Paul. And so on the next day, they convene to hear yet again, one more time, Paul's explanation for why he's here. And that's when Festus explains that the reason for this hearing is to finally clearly articulate what charges are being brought against him so that he can send him to Caesar with that explanation. And all this then brings us to the conclusion of the story when Paul makes his defense to Agrippa in chapter 26. So in verse 1, King Agrippa invites Paul to speak. And Paul once more goes on to defend himself before these authorities. And his defense goes something like this. In verses 2 and 3, Paul suggests that he senses Agrippa has the familiarity with Jewish issues necessary to listen to a full presentation of all the issues. And he invites him to then listen patiently. And then in verses 4 through 8, Paul suggests that despite the charges that the Jews have brought against him, his life demonstrates that he loves the law of God, He has hoped in the resurrection as many Jews do. And that shouldn't be surprising for a Jew that they would believe God could raise the dead. And this isn't something he's ever changed on. But in verses 9 through 11, Paul suggests what has changed is that even though he once identified with the Jewish leaders who hated Christianity and were now opposing him, his mind changed because the evidence for the resurrected Christ was so strong. And so as a result, in verses 12 through 18... Paul recounts how when confronted with the reality of the resurrected Jesus, his entire life changed directions. Instead of a persecutor of Christ, he's now a servant of Christ. Instead of trying to stamp out Christianity, he's now a witness of, to everyone in order that, as verse 18 says, their eyes might be opened so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And then in verses 19 through 21, Paul recounts again how this is the reason he's on trial. Not because he's violated the law or disobeyed the God of Israel, but rather because he tells not only Jews, but also Gentiles, they can know God personally through repentance and faith in Jesus. And so finally, in verses 22 through 23, Paul then points out how all this is consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. For the scriptures foretold that Christ would suffer 
rise from the dead, and through him bring light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And it's at this point, once again, for the third time, Paul's speech is interrupted. This time, Festus bursts out claiming that Paul has gone mad. He is out of his mind. Now, why would Festus interrupt Paul claiming that he's gone insane? Well, according to one scholar, there's two possible reasons. The first is it's possible that a blessing to both Jews and Gentiles is a difficult thought for this pagan ruler. Reconciliation of the races before God is a struggle for some people to accept. And the reaction that he has is like the one that Paul had in his speech in Acts chapter 17. But more likely, since he's just now talking about resurrection, is that insanity is what resurrection would have seemed like to a Roman who might have only believed in the immortality of the soul. So for Festus, such a doctrine is learned speculation. It has the sound of wisdom, but it's not actually reasonable. And yet this is what Paul says is true of the gospel. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. And so here, just briefly, if you are not a Christian, I want to pause and help you to see from this text that there is one argument you should not use against Christianity. We tend to imagine that we, as modern people, take claims of bodily resurrection with skepticism, while the ancients would be very likely to believe these kind of supernatural claims and would have immediately accepted it. And so as a result, many have claimed that the resurrection didn't actually happen. People were just so eager to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, that if someone had stolen the body, they were ready to believe it. And others who were sincere may have just gone along for a good cause. But texts like this one and the one we saw two weeks ago show that is far from the case. Both Roman pagans and Jewish religious leaders thought resurrection was insane. No one would have believed it normally. The people of that day were just as skeptical, skeptical of claims of a resurrection as we are today. It is a true statement. Dead people do not normally rise from the dead. We can all agree with that. And so if you're being intellectually honest... You should acknowledge one reason you are not rejecting Christianity is because as a modern person, you know better than the ancients. They were just as skeptical as you were. Instead, Paul's response to Festus is the same thing you need to struggle with as well. And so in verses 25 and 26, Paul replies this, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. In other words, although the resurrection certainly sounds crazy, Paul's point is he's simply being rational and true because the events regarding Jesus have not been done in a corner. They've been public uh, events that anyone could verify. And so as one pastor points out, Paul has such confidence that the miracles and ministry and death of Christ and the reports by eyewitnesses of the resurrection could not have escaped the king's knowledge. This is an important thing for us to notice. It's now about 25 years after the death of Jesus, and yet Paul is able at such a crucial moment to assume that anyone who has lived in and around Jerusalem would have known all these things. And so he can say without fear of contradiction, the king knows about this man, Jesus, the miracles he did, how his tomb was empty, and how many people have claimed to see him risen. That's amazing. These facts were so well known that even unbelievers and enemies of the Christian faith could not deny them. Which means, if you're not a Christian, like Festus, like Agrippa, you have to account for three publicly verifiable details that were true then, and historically certain facts that are still considered true today. First, Jesus' tomb was empty. If his tomb wasn't empty, anyone who was opposing him could have simply reproduced the body. Second, eyewitness claims uh, to claim to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. It's extremely difficult to see how Christianity could have spread so rapidly if Paul's amazing assertions that all these people, hundreds of people, have seen Jesus risen from the dead were not true. And other people are going around saying, no, I know Paul said that I saw Jesus, but he's crazy. I didn't. Christianity would have ended right then, right there, if the eyewitnesses had recanted their story. 
Either they must have actually seen Christ, or hundreds of people must have been a part of an elaborate conspiracy which lasted for decades. And Paul suggests to his readers in 1 Corinthians, you can go and actually ask these eyewitnesses what they saw. So this would have had to have been a hoax that lasted for years, and one in which no conspirator ever broke down and recanted to tell the truth. Which then brings us to the third amazing historical fact. Most impressive of all is that nearly all the early apostles died as martyrs. As Pascal put it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. It's hard to believe this kind of powerful self-sacrifice was all a hoax that they were willing to die for. And so if you are not a Christian, I want to ask you, what are you going to do with those historical facts? I can't prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead. But I'll suggest to you, you cannot find a better, more plausible explanation for the three historical facts that everyone agrees really happened. The best explanation is Jesus really rose from the dead. And so with this reminder that all of this that has taken place hasn't happened in a corner, Paul then brilliantly turns to King Agrippa. And in verse 27, he presses Agrippa to admit that he believes the prophets. Because if he believes these Old Testament scriptures, then it's only reasonable to believe that Christ has actually risen from the dead. And with this rhetorical move, King Agrippa's stuck. If he says, I don't believe the prophets in order to end it, he'd certainly lose credibility among all the Jews he's been trying to influence. But if he does affirm the prophets, then Paul can begin to press him even further to say, then you ought to believe in Christ. Because all of the scriptures pointed to the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus was the Messiah the prophets foretold. And so, he deflects, asking in verse 28, if Paul would seek to persuade him to be a Christian. And Paul's answer is the answer I hope that every Christian in the room would offer. Paul says in verse 29, whether short or long, I would be glad, I, I, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. That's his longing for every single person to hear the gospel and to believe on Christ, and to experience the hope of the resurrection. And I certainly hope that's the longing for every Christian in this room, that whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, that we would long for everyone to hear, believe, and see the goodness and grace of Jesus. But with that plea, the meeting is adjourned. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and all who are with them stand up and exit. And their conclusion in verse 31 is this. This man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And then Agrippa adds to that in verse 32. This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So what does all of this teach us? I think this text is tailored to teach us that God uses injustice to accomplish his purposes. God uses injustice to accomplish his purposes. So clearly, injustice is done here. Paul should have been declared innocent, acquitted of all charges, released, set free. In chapter 25, verse 7, Luke narrates that the Jews once again couldn't prove any of their charges against Paul. In verse 9, then Festus indicates the reason he doesn't offer an innocent verdict is because he wants to do the Jews a favor. In verse 10, Paul reiterates he knows he's done nothing wrong, and Festus knows he's done nothing wrong. Then later in chapter 25, in verse 18 and 19, Festus recounts the reason Paul stands accused is not because of anything evil, but because of a disagreement about Jesus. And then in 25 and 27, Festus can't even articulate the charges against him. This fast forward to verses 6 and 7 of chapter 26 and 20 and 23, Paul reiterates the reason he's on trial is not for any wrongdoing, but because of his hope in the resurrection. And then finally, as we just saw at the end of chapter 26, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice all agree this man is innocent that he has done nothing deserving either death or imprisonment. And finally, in verse 32, Agrippa states that Paul could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. But that's actually the problem. The reason he appealed to Caesar is because Festus was unwilling to declare him innocent. Injustice has been done. 
And yet it's precisely through this injustice that God is working about his, his purposes. You may remember from two weeks ago, Jesus promised in chapter 23, verse 11, that Paul would testify not only in Jerusalem, but all the way to Rome. And here, through the injustice done at this trial and the many trials before it, God is securing for Paul a path to testify not just in Rome, but before Caesar, the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. God is using injustice to accomplish his purposes. And this is not just true in this particular instance. This is true throughout all the biblical story. This is true of Joseph. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused and put in prison. But in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph himself would say this. You meant evil against me, but God meant it, the, the injustice of selling Joseph into slavery, for good. This was true of the story of Job. If you've been reading Job with us in community Bible reading, you know that Job lost his fortune, his family, and his fame, because not because he had done anything wrong, but actually because he hadn't done anything wrong. And in the end, God used all this to demonstrate that Job's hope was truly in God, not in what God had given him. This was also true of Jesus. As Tony Merida points out, one can't miss the parallels between Jesus' case here. Both Paul and Jesus were prosecuted before a Roman governor and then brought before a Jewish king. Both Paul and Jesus were found to be innocent, but Jesus would die at the hand of Pilate and Paul would be sent to Rome for further trial. And yet, all of the injustice done against Jesus, according to Acts 4.28, happened according to God's hand and God's plan. Why? Well, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why God allowed all this to happen. That's why God was working for this injustice to happen against Jesus that his people might receive salvation over and over and over and over again. God uses injustice to accomplish his purposes. And that's not just true in the Bible. It's still true for us today. And so what significance does this reality hold for our lives today? Well, first, we should clarify that even though God uses injustice to accomplish his purposes, that doesn't mean we need to actively seek out unjust treatment. Nor does it mean that if we're being treated unjustly, that we have to stay enduring it if we have a way of escape. Instead, we see first that we should be prepared to experience injustice while avoiding injustice if we can. We should be prepared to experience injustice while avoiding injustice if we can. So again and again, we've seen throughout the book of Acts that Paul was ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And so too should we be prepared to experience injustice if it should ever come against us. We should not be surprised by it, but ready for it, prepared for it. And yet I want to be very, very clear here. Just because God in his providence uses injustice to accomplish his purposes does not mean we must endure injustice if there's a way of escape. When Paul sees Festus, uh, sees that Festus is not going to give him a just verdict, he appeals. He's not willing to endure further harm. Instead, he seeks justice for himself by appealing to a higher authority. Similarly, if we are being unjustly treated, and there is a way we can get justice or at least avoid injustice, we should take it. But sadly, in our day... There's one area of life where this path often is not taken. And so let me just say here, and give you a fair warning. I'm going to talk about some heavy things right now for a little bit. And if it feels too intense for you, feel free to just get up and walk out. There's no shame in doing that. That is totally fine. But according to various studies, 50% of domestic violence incidents go left unreported. Two-thirds of child abuse is left unreported. And the reason so much abuse is left unreported is for a variety of reasons. Some of them are that the victims fear that no one will believe them because their abuser controls every domain of their life. Their victims are financially unstable. They've been prevented from working or don't have access to family funds. 
And oftentimes the victims have been convinced by their abusers that the abuse is normal or that it's their fault. And so why would they come forward? And to get a scale for how widespread this is, statistics suggest that one in four women and one in nine men have experienced intimate partner abuse and one in seven children have experienced child abuse. Now, if those statistics held true for our congregation, which I pray and hope is not the case, that would mean 13 women in this room, three men, and four children have experienced some form of abuse and neglect in the whole. And it's more likely than not that that kind of abuse has gone left unnoticed and unreported. And so people are enduring, staying under the injustice, under the harm, even though there's a way of escape. And so all of this would burden me to plead with you, especially any children or teenagers. If you are being neglected, harmed, mistreated by anyone, including someone in your home, please do not stay silent. Please tell me, tell a Sunday school teacher, tell someone in this congregation so that you can get help. And kids and teenagers, look up here for just a minute. I want you to hear this clearly from your pastor. Jesus loves you. Jesus welcomes you into his presence. And if you are being hurt by anyone, he is not pleased with it. In fact, some of the hardest words Jesus reserves are for people who would harm you. And so if you are experiencing anything like that, please come talk with me. Come talk with anyone in this congregation whom you trust. We want to see you get safety. We promise we will do whatever we can to see you get safety. But to the rest of our church family, please hear this. If someone comes to you and discloses abuse, please extend compassion, trust, and ask for help from one of your elders. Sadly, even in churches, many who are hurting stay in hiding. And the reason for this in churches has been well documented. One victim advocate and counselor writes this. Many victims find that church leaders often minimize their pleas, make excuses for violent men, and imply that the victim is in some way to blame. One survivor writes this. Often church leaders can't believe they've been fooled by the perpetrator. Surely they think if our friend or colleague were an abuser, we'd have noticed. And this isn't just a problem for church leaders. Congregants hate to be wrong, too. We consider ourselves wise and discerning. We're overly confident in our ability to judge character. And this overconfidence makes us easy prey for those who flatter and manipulate. And so when a victim tells someone their friend is an abuser, they refuse to believe it. They explain away the behavior, saying, That doesn't sound like the man I know. You must be mistaken. They're too proud to consider they might have been conned that the person they trust is dangerous. And because they're unwilling to admit they're wrong, they cover up abuse and it continues. Let me just be clear. In our culture, it's becoming more and more common for someone to make a false allegation. And because of that, the victim gets unconditional support. And on the one hand, we think, I think we ought to praise God that victims are getting support that they ought to right away. But on the other hand, that means sometimes the accusations are false. And so please don't mishear me here. I'm not saying that in the past, because in the past we've been suspicious of survivors' stories, that we shouldn't exercise wisdom and we should immediately assume that the person they're accusing is guilty. However, I am saying if someone ever discloses abuse, make it your first instinct to take their disclosure seriously, to show compassion to them. If they've been abused... They've been hurting and have been living in fear possibly for years. And then recognize your judgment about the abuser could be wrong, which is why you need to then escalate and go to someone who can actually investigate the claims. Not because the claims are necessarily true, but because we're not skilled to do the investigation. We need to involve people who actually have the skills and training to investigate whether such abuse has actually happened. So while God uses even injustice to accomplish his purposes, we never, ever need to remain in an unjust treatment, an unjust situation, if we can avoid and escape it. So if you can, I plead with you, get out. And if someone comes to you asking for help, seek to help them. And if you need help doing so, please talk with any of your elders here. 
So we should be prepared to experience injustice while avoiding injustice if we can. Second, we should entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. We should entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Although Paul knew he would face opposition for the mission he had been trusted all the way back in Acts chapter uh, 9, he reports to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, he follows the example of Jesus as described in 1 Peter 2. Listen to it. For to this you have been called, all Christians you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So because God uses injustice to accomplish his purposes, like Paul and like Jesus, we too should entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. And here I have in mind two specific ways we can do that. First, and less directly connected to the point of our passage, we ought to trust that all injustice will eventually be punished by God. In Romans 12, 19, Paul urges, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. When we suffer injustice, we don't have to take it into our own hands. We can trust and even look forward to a day when all evil, all wickedness, all injustice will be justly punished by the wrath of God. So brother or sister in Christ... If you're the subject of injustice, take heart. God sees what's being done to you, and you will be vindicated on the day of judgment when no evil deed will go unpunished. But second, I'm going to invite all of us to trust that God will work out his good purposes for our lives, even using injustice done against us. This is what was true for Paul. God used his unjust treatment in this trial to accomplish a grander purpose for his life. And this is what God promises will be true for all of us. In Romans 8.28, Paul writes, We know that those who love God, all things work together for good. And so like Joseph, at the end of our life, we may figure out what that purpose was. Or like Job, we may never learn in this life what that purpose is. But we can trust That no matter what we face, no matter what injustice we experience, when we see God face to face, he will not be found wanting. We will not be disappointed. We can trust him today that no matter what we're going through, he's using it for our good and his glory. So we can trust that he'll use the unjust verdict for our good. We can trust he'll use the false accusation for our good and his glory. We can trust that he'll use the betrayal for our good and his glory. We can trust that he'll use passing over us for someone else who's less qualified for our good and his glory. And on and on we can go. We can even trust that he'll use the abuse for our good and his glory. And the primary reason we can trust God to do that is because of what he's already done through Christ. As we read, when Jesus was unjustly crucified on the cross... Peter tells us he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, if God can take the most wicked, most unjust experience in all of human history, the crucifixion of the perfect son of God as a criminal and turn that into salvation, turn that into life and hope for all who repent of their sin and believe in him, then surely... God can take whatever injustice you've experienced and turn it for your good and for his glory. Which brings us then to the final implication. We should rest in our salvation justly secured by the injustice done to Jesus. We should rest in our salvation justly secured by the injustice done to Jesus. This is at the heart of Paul's message. In chapter 26, verse 18 through 21, Paul reports that Jesus sent him to the Jews and the Gentiles to open our eyes so that we could experience four things. That we might turn from darkness to light. 
Once we were blind, but now we see. We're able to see the world, ourselves, our sin, and our Savior as we ought to. That we may turn from the power of Satan to God. Once we were slave to sin, unable to seek God or please God, but now we have been transferred to God's kingdom, enabled by the power of His Spirit to do what pleases God. That we may receive forgiveness of our sins. Once we stood guilty and condemned before a holy God, standing under His wrath. But now, we have been forgiven. Our debt has been canceled. Our sin has been wiped away. Finally, that we may receive a place among those who are sanctified in Christ through faith. Once we were isolated, alienated, enemies of God and His people, but now... We receive a new community and a new family. When we come to God and receive Him as a Father, we immediately and automatically get a new set of brothers and sisters. And Jesus earned all this for us, living a perfect life of righteousness we owe to God. He earned this by paying the penalty we deserve for our sins when He died on the cross and suffered God's wrath. And He earned all this when He rose from the dead on the third day and victory over sin and Satan, and as a sign that his sacrifice had been accepted by God. And the language in Acts gets at not just the benefits of the gospel, but at the heart of the gospel and how we should respond. The language again is, we turn from darkness to light. We turn from the power of Satan to God. The appropriate response to all that God has done for us in Christ is to turn from our sin to God. This is the idea of repentance that Paul will describe in verse 20. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. But this is not just a moral or behavioral turning as if we could clean up our act and merit God's favor. No, this is a reorientation of worship. Instead of worshiping our sin, ourselves, or our idols, we now worship God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And now that we love Jesus most, deeds in keeping with repentance flow out of that transformed heart. And when we turn, notice, we receive something. We receive forgiveness of sin. We receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Becoming a Christian is to receive forgiveness in a community, not to merit it or to earn it, Instead, we receive and rest on what Jesus has done alone for our salvation. And here is the absolute amazing reality. Once we have turned from our sin to Christ and we have received his freely gift, our salvation is justly secured. It's guaranteed. It cannot be taken away lest God become unjust. This is the message of 1 John 1, nine. There the Apostle John writes this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice, when John says we confess our sins, he is faithful and not merciful, not gracious, but just. We normally think of forgiveness as being associated with God's grace and God's mercy, which in one sense it is. But we often don't think of it being related to his justice. But here's the implication Once Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, it would be unjust for God not to forgive us. Which is why John says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In fact, if he were not to forgive us, if he were to hold our sin against us, to exact more punishment from us, he would be unjust. Because he would be demanding a second payment for our sin that has already been paid by Jesus. This is part of the point of Hebrews chapter 7 that we'll read tomorrow. There the author writes this. Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. With his one sacrifice, Jesus paid once for all for all our sin. And so if God were to exact another punishment, he would be rejecting the once for all sacrifice of Christ. He would be saying, that payment was not enough, we want more. But actually, he would be unjust because the payment was enough. He's asking for more. 
And so the security of our salvation then rests not just on God's mercy and grace, but on God's judgment that all of God's wrath has been drunk up in the cross. There is nothing more to be spent on us. And God will not deny himself. He is faithful and just. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, rest in your salvation. It has been justly secured by the injustice done to Jesus. You were blind, but now you see. You were enslaved, but now you are free. You were condemned, but now you are forgiven. You once were alone, but now you have a family. And all this has been secured once for all by Jesus. Nothing can compromise that. Not sin, not Satan, not even yourself. And so rest securely in what he has done for you. And if you're not a Christian, I'd plead with you, turn to him today in repentance and faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for what happened in the first century. And when you turn your heart's worship from your sin or yourself to Jesus, you will receive sight, power, forgiveness, and a family. So I'd ask you, what are you waiting for? Why not consider turning to Jesus today? If this is what you want, please come talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to tell you more about how you can turn your life to Jesus. So we've seen in this passage, God gloriously and graciously uses all things to accomplish his, his purpose, including injustice. And that does not mean we need to stay up under injustice if we don't have to. We can escape it. But it does mean we entrust ourselves to our God who judges justly. And we rest securely in the salvation he justly secured for us by the injustice done against Jesus. And it's this free gift, graciously, justly secured by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table together. We remember Christ's death in our place so that we might receive forgiveness. We celebrate through the cross that we've not only given a new father, but we've been given a new family of brothers and sisters. And so we celebrate our union, not just with Christ, but one another. And we anticipate Christ's return when all will be set right. And all of God's good and glorious purposes for our lives including every experience of injustice, will finally and completely be seen, experienced, and rejoiced in. But before we celebrate these precious gifts by taking part in the Lord's Supper together, Paul warns us, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so before we come to the table together to remember what Christ has already done for us and hopeful anticipation in the day, our trouble will give way to joy. Let's take a moment to examine ourselves. First, let's examine ourselves to see if we are in Christ. If you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this meal is not for you. And I'd encourage you to stay in your seat and instead reflect on two questions. First, how do you make sense of the historical facts that Jesus' tomb was empty, that there were eyewitnesses to him being risen from the dead, and that those people were willing to die without recanting? And second, reflect on this. What is preventing you today from turning to Christ and receiving his grace? If you can identify an answer to that question, come talk with me or any of us afterwards. We'd love to work through that issue with you. But second, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, examine your relationships in the body of Christ. One of the core concerns that would lead Paul to say that the church in Corinth was taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner was that there were divisions running through the heart of the church. And so examine your relationships. If you have not extended forgiveness, if you've nursed bitterness in your heart towards another brother or sister in Christ, or you're aware of someone who has something against you and you've not done, as Romans 12 said, everything insofar as it depends on you to be at peace with all, then go and be reconciled. And use this time right now, if you're struggling to extend that forgiveness, 
to reflect on the debt you owed God. How great was your sin? Reflect on the payment Jesus offered on the cross. How great was his sacrifice? And reflect on all that he's then extended to you and let that melt your heart towards your brother and sister in Christ and then go and be reconciled. And the third, examine yourself for unrepentant sin. We need to remember that we all come to Jesus as sinners by his grace and we all come to this table as sinners by his grace. If it were not so, none of us would come at all. And so the mark of a Christian is not that we're perfect, It's not that we never sin, it's that we repent of known sin. And so the invitation here is to examine your life, not for whether or not you sinned since the last time you took communion or since you became a Christian. I assume you have. I assume most of us sinned this morning. The call is to examine your life for any sin you're holding on to more than Jesus. If anything in your life has become more important to you than Jesus, that you're unwilling to open your hands and let it go, then I would plead with you. Reflect on what Jesus has done for you. And turn and run to him for a fresh experience of his grace. Because his grace is sufficient for you. And if the Spirit doesn't stir up anything through these particular prompts, then I'd invite you to simply use the time we're about to have to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word this morning. And perhaps the questions on the screen will help you do that. What injustice are you currently experiencing that you should seek help to avoid? Resolve to talk to someone today to ask for help. How are you trusting God both to ultimately bring about justice and to bring about good for you through the injustice done against you? Thank God for his injustice and ask him to help you to trust him more. How does Paul's confidence that Jesus' resurrection is historically verifiable Encourage you to turn to Christ to receive sight, power, forgiveness, and a new family. And if you've never trusted him before, talk with someone today about that. And finally, how does Jesus' death in your place give you confidence that your salvation is totally secure? Thank him for that security. And ask him for him to help you to rest more securely in his grace.